Well, thanks. Thanks, Greg. Thanks for that kind introduction. It's a real pleasure to be um, uh, at the CIS among friends. I know many of you, a number of you I've met at Concilium and other fora, uh, so it's a real pleasure to be here and, and to be associated with the Centre for Independent Studies. Um, when I look at these wonderful premises, you know, we, we think about that humble garage. And, I, I, and then I heard that there was a little office over a toy shop or something as well. So uh, you've done well, Greg, and it's, it, it's great uh, to be able to be associated with it. Um, well, Greg said to me, uh, we said, you know, if you're coming, why don't you give a talk? And he said, um, suggested that I perhaps revisit the to-do, the famous to-do list or infamous uh, to-do list. And um, so um, uh, he made me an offer I couldn't really refuse. And some of you will know the backdrop to this. Um, I've got a few slides that I'll go through. Um, uh, I hope they're not too distracting, but um, uh, more to illustrate uh, what I'm saying. I was at a uh, I was at a conference, a CETA conference in Brisbane, when um, uh, when somebody in the crowd asked Glenn Stevens um, how do we raise productivity, and he spotted me in the audience, and he said, "Well, he said that, you know, he said uh, the productivity's got a long list, commission's got a long list, um, just go get the list and do them." Well, as I was leaving that event, a, a journalist came over to me and said, "Could I have the list?" Um, <laughs> And of course, there wasn't a list, uh, but, I th but I thought, uh, what a good idea. Yeah, so it became my swan song uh, on leaving the Productivity Commission. But I guess the point that Glenn was making is that you couldn't expect uh, macro demand instruments uh, to do it all. Even then, you know, interest rates were driving uh, historically low and, and debt was rising pretty fast. Um, and there was little, little room left, really, uh, in, those, in those instruments. And we, and they were mainly seen to be impacting on asset prices anyway, rather than production and investment. So naturally, you know, you can do so much on the aggregate demand side, but let's think about the supply side um, uh, and so on. And there are really only two ways of, in the long run, uh, increasing per capita incomes, and that is by either uh, uh, getting more output per person uh, from an economy or for getting higher prices uh, for what you do produce, in other words, in terms of trade. Um, and when Glenn uh, gave, uh, gave the talk, uh, the terms of trade were pretty high. And he, he put that chart up, actually, to show that if you take a long enough look at history, uh, what goes up uh, does tend to come down. And I remember the time there was a bit of a, you know, a titter of laughter, uh, as if to say, well, how, you know, uh, how could that happen? And, and of course, the terms of trade did come up, come down. They're coming back up again. But I guess the point is uh, you can't rely on it. Um, and indeed, there's not much the government can do to influence the terms of trade, at least in, in direct terms. Well, um, the fall in the terms of trade uh, exposed uh, the impact of what had already been happening uh, in terms of productivity, declining productivity, which the decline had been pretty much as dramatic as, as the rise in the terms of trade uh, itself. And this little chart shows what happens across so-called productivity uh, cycles, um, uh, where you can see that um, uh, essentially the drop in, in multifactor productivity, the green bars there, certainly in the middle period, was offset uh, by terms of trade uh, and by higher capital inputs and, and labour inputs. Um, uh, but in the more recent period, uh, it didn't have that uh, compensation. Now, of course, 
Um, prior to the global financial crisis, there's a lot of talk about the three Ps. And you remember the, the first intergenerational uh, report and all of that. That kind of got forgotten uh, in, in, the, in the crisis and, and, and people you know, got, got more uh, interested in, uh, uh, in demand stimulation. But there were three Ps, not one, uh, not just productivity, and the others are population and participation. And of course, uh, participation in, and increased uh, labour input did help uh, uh, for part of the time, but there's a limit to the extent to which you can increase labour force participation. I mean, some of the poorest countries in the world have the highest labour force participation rates. So, so in the longer term, you know, there's, there's a limit uh, to which you can reasonably uh, expect that uh, to get you um, uh, out of trouble. But the Productivity Commission's analysis, which I've, I've got on this chart here, and by the way, I think, Greg, we can make all these charts available to everybody, uh, couldn't we? Um, shows that uh, actually the difference between historically the worst performance and the best performance, uh, productivity is a standout in terms of the, of, of the ability of that to make a difference to per capita GDP uh, in the longer term. So that chart is just showing how much larger per capita GDP would be if we performed at our historically high uh, productivity performance rate rather than historically low. And it beats, you know, the historical highs and lows uh, for all of those other labour market related uh, indicators there. And in fact, between the, the first intergenerational report and the second one, uh, based on the recent experience, the, the average labour uh, force, uh, labour productivity uh, rate going into the future was reduced uh, from 1.75 to 1.6 and that small reduction meant a difference of some $7,000 you know, per capita by the middle of the century uh, in, in incomes. So a little bit of productivity uh, uh, does go a long way and of course um, it's not for its own sake but rather to uh, essentially uh, support higher incomes and, to su and support the capacity of government to address disadvantage and, and all those sorts of things. There used to be a saying that a government cannot redistribute what its economy does not produce. Um, that that uh, slogan or, or part of a more important narrative seems to have got a bit lost more recently, that, that production does come before, before consumption and, and distribution. Well, uh, the Productivity Commission saw the reaction to the slump in productivity uh, as a little bit of an overreaction at the time, thinking that and calculating that about half of it actually uh, was due to cyclical or structural changes uh, in the economy um, and did a fair bit of work around that. Um, but it has been slow to respond. That's a chart of multi-factor productivity, which, can, which really tells a story of how stagnant uh, multi-factor productivity, which is sort of an indicator uh, of efficiency, uh, has been in that period since uh, 2003. But even if you, if you assume that half of it was the usual suspects, the other half um, still needs to be explained. And a number of you might be familiar with Richard Gordon's thesis that, in fact, this is part of a global phenomenon uh, to do with, uh, I suppose, waves of, of innovation that are losing power more recently relative to the early waves of innovation uh, uh, and so on. Now, it has an implication that we, this is the new normal and we just better get used to it. Um, however, even if that's valid, if there are policies that are holding us back, or as economists say, that are keeping us below the production possibility frontier, 
uh, clearly that's something that we should be focused on. Um, and for any given technological scenario, uh, we can do better if we address those kinds of uh, 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 policy impediments. And the Productivity Commission is, in a way, specialised in sniffing out those uh, impediments to performance uh, and, and identifying and quantifying them. And it's produced quite a, a, a long list of those. Um, and indeed, it has a current inquiry uh, uh, looking at uh, uh, how that list could be expanded or are there new things? Uh, I think it has a sense that the old list fell on deaf ears, so maybe there'll be some new things that can, uh, you know, that can boost uh, productivity. The Commission's approach reflects a basic insight that what we see in terms of the aggregate productivity uh, results is really just the sum total of what's happening uh, within individual firms and then their respective uh, market shares, their shares of, of industries and sectors. So at the firm level, whether they're doing things uh, in better ways or new things, uh, and at the industry level, whether um, we're seeing the, the better performers replace uh, the worst performers, or what Schumpeter called creative destruction, not a term that politicians like to use very often for some reason, but it's an important part of the story, and some studies internationally have shown that productivity growth has been at least one-third due to creative destruction uh, as opposed to innovation within individual, uh, individual uh, firms. So when you think about uh, productivity in that way, um, the Commission's approach, the framework that it, that it has put forward uh, is set up out on that slide, that there are policies which can help give uh, firms the incentive or, or disincentive to be productive and there are also policies that can help enhance capabilities uh, and flexibility. And the, uh, the to-do list that, um, that I, I uh, put together, assembled from Productivity Commission reports over a reasonable period of time, were organised under those, uh, those headings. Now, you'll be relieved that I'm not going to go through all of these lists. In fact, one of the problems with this talk is I've got far too many lists. So I'll stick them on the slide. You can get copies of the slide and, and we can talk, uh, obviously, about them uh, uh, later. But in terms of the incentives, and this is very highly uh, summarised, uh, a range of uh, issues to do with trade regulation, anti-competitive regulation and subsidies and so on, all of which either distort or, uh, uh, production or reduce incentives to, to, be, uh, uh, to be productive. On the capability front, the Commission's done a lot of work in, in the areas of human capital, the innovation system, infrastructure and government services. Uh, where there's a whole range of uh, policies there that would uh, enhance their contributions uh, to productivity performance and, and, and per capita uh, income growth. Uh, and of course, uh, flexibility, uh, which is very important. You can have the incentives, you can have the capabilities, but if you don't have the flexibility um, as a producer to allocate resources where they can be most productive, then you've got a problem. So workplace labour market regulation uh, is a key one, but there's a range of others to do with the environment, environmental regulation and so on. They tend to be regulatory uh, imposts uh, in, in, that, uh, in that category. Now, interestingly enough, um, the Commission looked at a whole range of uh, impediments to productivity performance, but it very rarely got an opportunity to look at tax. I think that's because the Commission was in the, in the Treasury portfolio, and I don't think Treasury wanted the Commission meddling with tax too much. <laughs> But it seemed pretty clear to us, you know, that tax, you could put tax under each of those headings. 
that the taxation system you know, affects the allocation of resources, it affects efficiency, it, it, it affects incentives. And the Henry Review thought that tax reform, even leaving aside the question of the GST, could potentially raise GDP by, by 2 to 3 per cent. Well, uh, five years on from uh, that uh, to-do list in 2012, uh, how are we going? When, when uh, Greg first asked me to do this, I thought I should try to be a bit systematic about it, but I gave up. I didn't have time. And then I, I thought, well, there's little point anyway, because we all know the answer. There's been very little progress uh, in terms of uh, that list of things. And where there have been gains, they've tended to be isolated or they've, they've been offset uh, by by policies in the other direction. So for example, we saw a historic uh, end to the automotive, uh, or projected end to the automotive uh, uh, subsidy scheme. Uh, Qantas was in a bit of trouble um, uh, a few years back, and um, that was not responded to. SPC uh, in rural Victoria, a similar story. But on the other hand, we've seen the submarine saga, uh, and other industries like aluminium, agriculture, and so on. Uh, big wind, uh, where uh, subsidies have obviously been ramping up. So when you look at the Productivity Commission's report, which tends to come out with quite a lag, we're still talking about uh, eight billion plus in budgetary assistance uh, to industry, some of which obviously is buying a good outcome for the public, but, but some of which is not. The least progress uh, has occurred in the, area, in the key areas of interest, uh, industrial relations uh, and tax. And that's despite in that period since 2012, further reviews being done uh, in both of, those, uh, both of those areas. And indeed, there have been a range of other reviews, such as the Harper Review of Competition uh, Policy, et cetera, um, uh, which has not led to much action. I think in, in the case of the Harper Review, the Section 46 issue, which to me was not the, uh, was not the deal breaker in terms of uh, competition policy, is the one that got most attention. Well, you might have seen in the paper that Ken Henry had a similar list, um, uh, uh, although he didn't mention industrial relations or, or some of the spending programs, but he, he mentioned a bunch of things that he thought were quite important against the objectives that he saw as important. And there's a fair degree of overlap. Um, there's a fair degree of overlap in, in terms of his, uh, his confidence that that list would be ticked off anytime soon as well. Um, and when I put out that report, I wasn't thinking that things were going to change uh, all, that, all that quickly. I had pretty low uh, expectations. I mean, after all, those things are on the list because they were in Productivity Commission inquiries, a lot, along with a lot of other recommendations, but they weren't picked up. So they were a residual, really, of, of the Commission's uh, uh, recommendations. Now, anyone who chaired the Productivity Commission for 15 years and worked there a little bit longer, obviously, um, is a pretty patient person. And uh, I was pretty sanguine about that. I, I, I guess I understood it, although the cartoonists like to see me as a lot angrier. Uh, 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 Spooner's not known for his love of rational economic policy, by the way, but uh, I have kept that one. I couldn't have it on my wall when Rudd was still in power, but, um, but uh, it's on my wall now. Well. As we all know, I mean, the reality is that structural reform is the hardest policy to get through uh, politically, and this is not a new thing. This is a wonderful quote. I'm not sure uh, whether I discovered it or somebody discovered it for me, probably the latter. But in a way, it just sums up the challenges that governments face. The reformer has enemies in all those who profit by the old order and only lukewarm defenders in those who would profit 
uh, uh, by the new. So I spent a lot of my career observing that asymmetry in political pressure in action and how it's played through in terms of uh, public policy. And of course, it hasn't just been an obstacle to reform, but it's also been the reason why the policies that need reform uh, got there uh, in the first place. And I was talking about it being a lot easier to make bad policy than good policy at a BCA function, and some wag uh, decided to call this the bank's corollary to the Machiavelli axiom. So I've had my name linked with Machiavelli, which, um, uh, which I'm not sure I'm all that happy about, but, um, but it's certainly true. And of course, the biggest beneficiary uh, of that at the front end over time has been the automotive industry. Greg, uh, uh, I was asked earlier, I think Greg said, how much public money did that industry get over time, you know, going right back to the year dot? Well, I found a number, Greg, just for the period 1997 to 2012, $30 billion in transitional assistance. $30 billion in transitional assistance uh, over that period. Um, so that's why I, I've, I've described on a number of occasions the auto industry as being Australia's most successful rent-seeking industry, with the possible exception of the Pharmacy Guild. Well, I guess others have stepped into the breach uh, since then, and we've seen a whole collection of new policies uh, that will uh, inevitably need reform uh, in the future. They often they reflect either poor spending or bad regulation or both. And I've got a list there, and I won't go through it, but we could come back and talk about it uh, afterwards. In some cases, good intentions, poor execution, in others, uh, responding to the kind of political asymmetry that, that I talked about uh, uh, talked about earlier, and sometimes a combination of the two. Terry O'Brien has put in, uh, an old colleague of mine who headed the Canberra Office of the Productivity Commission has put in an, uh, a submission to the Productivity Commission's inquiry. Uh, and I quote, he says, when successive governments commit $50 billion each on low productivity projects, twice in a decade, the fall in productivity growth looks a bit less puzzling. <laughs> He's called uh, this hypothesis the too many bad decisions hypothesis. So I commend his, uh, his paper to you. And perhaps the most egregious of these um, is the fact that we've sabotaged a key source of comparative advantage for this country, namely low cost energy. And if there was any, an area of debacle, of policy debacle, it has been that whole uh, carbon energy uh, area. I mean, traditionally, the low cost energy substituted for high cost labor. Uh, and, and tax to some extent. Um, so it, it, if nothing's going to be done about that, certainly something has to be done as an imperative for those other high-cost areas. So in a way, you could say this is the natural order reasserting itself. Um, but it could also mean that the success of the reform uh, era, era was a uh, historical aberration, and, and we may be just reverting to the mean. Now, Bill Coleman, has, William Coleman has, written, has edited a book, which some of you may have seen on Australian exceptionalism, where he, he favours that thesis that in a way we are simply referring to the mean. And Paul Kelly, who's here, has written an excellent article on that uh, in The Australian, I think ending on a more hopeful note. I mean, to answer that question, to get a sense of it, um, I think we really need to, uh, to assess the features that led to the success, the successes with, we saw throughout the reform era, and whether or not they're achievable uh, today. 
anticipating where I'm going, when you do look at that, there is cause for hope. But, but again, I am an optimist. Well, there's some good evidence on the success factors in the Productivity Commission review of the National Competition Policy, uh, which it did in about 2005. I mean, by, by a lot of measures, that's one of the most impressive reform episodes uh, that we've had. It faced all the Machiavelli problems in terms of vested interests and asymmetric pressures on government, a lot of pressures of, of existing entitlements. It had the problem of jurisdictional differences and having to forge a national policy, and it also had areas of great complexity. Yet the Productivity Commission found that it satisfied, uh, it satisfied the three, that's just a reminder actually of, of, the, of the extent of those reforms. Um, that report's still worth a look at actually, and it's on the Commission's uh, website. But the Commission in that report found that the national competition policy met uh, what it called the three uh, reform, three conditions, essential conditions for successful reform, which don't look like, they don't look that surprising. The first is broad recognition of the problem, but it is surprising how many attempted reforms launch themselves or an attempt to launch themselves before there's been a broad recognition of the problem. I don't normally quote Mick Young, but I'm quoting him secondhand, and I, I, uh, he's quoted as saying, you can't sell the public the solution until they understand the problem. Well, that, that sounds about right. Um, but the NCP also got broad acceptance of, of the solutions, and some of, some of those were quite radical ones, like the reverse onus of proof in relation to the competition test and so on, and had some very effective implementation arrangements. A lot of, a lot of reforms break down at that last hurdle in relation to implementation. But the real question then, if it satisfied those, those three reform essentials, uh, how did it achieve that? So the Productivity Commission review uh, uh, got, got into that and came up with these further uh, underlying uh, success factors, uh, which it found as being uh, crucial to the ultimate success uh, of, of the uh, NCP, which by the way, um, almost seamlessly continued from the Labor government into the coalition government. So, you know, it went from the, uh, from the Keating government through to the Hawke government uh, pretty much without a blip, which is, is very unusual. Howard. Sorry, the Howard, Howard. Howard government. What did I say? Oh, well. oh okay. <laughs> Sorry. Um, so that is unusual, actually, particularly when you look at what's going on at the moment, and I'll come, I'll come back to that. Um, the first of these credible evidence and analysis that the NCP had that review by Fred Hilmer. The Hilmer report itself was buttressed, I think, by a number of reports by the Industry Commission. And these reports uh, were seriously good reports at trying to understand the issues, uh, what the cost of the status quo would be, uh, and how these could be lowered through um, some quite innovative reforms. That period, I don't think, has ever had, there's never been a, a, a period in Australia's government history, John might dispute this, where there's been such strong bureaucratic and st staff for support. The people who were involved in those reforms at the time were quality people, and the engagement between the, the department and the office, if I can put it that way, the department and the ministerial office uh, was very strong, and there was also strong coordination um, across jurisdictions. And then thirdly, and most importantly, 
uh, is the question of political leadership, which I've mentioned there had two strong dimensions that the Commission brought out. One was the commitment to good process, because those other good things don't happen without, without support from the top, but also the ability to sell reform to the public with a compelling narrative uh, rather than sloganeering, a narrative that's actually underpinned by, uh, by some good analysis. Well, that approach was deliberately designed to overcome the Machiavelli dilemma. It had been thought through. It was an approach based on information, consultation, uh, deliberation, and ultimately explanation to the public. And, and that's why I think those earlier success factors were met. There was a degree of understanding and trust that surrounded the NCP that was surprising, really, given the extent to which it was taking things away from people, if I could put it that way. Well, how do the recent initiatives uh, uh, compare? And I guess the answer to that is not very well. Um, now, I put this together myself. It's a bit subjective, and others might, um, might uh, put differences in uh, different ticks and crosses in those little boxes there. But when you look at that, there were quite a lot of uh, significant reform initiatives over that period that actually just fell at the first hurdle. Perhaps the most celebrated example was the university fees one that came out of the budget in, in 2014. But even those that, that were founded on reviews that did quite good work on the, on the problem and, uh, and looking at the different options and so on uh, struggled in terms of the subsequent hurdles about consultation, explanation and implementation uh, processes. And when you think about it, um, that bottom line is, in some respects, the worst example of, of uh, not being able to sort of meet those important requirements for successful reform. So you could sum all that up, I think, as an approach in which underprepared policy was foisted on an unprepared public. And many of those reforms, I've got another chart that shows that they all either stalled uh, or if they're implemented, they were reversed, uh, whether partially or, or, or fully. So I suppose the question is, why did we fail to implement our own model? Uh, I chair a committee of the OECD, and when I go there, I'm embarrassed at the extent to which people are applauding Australia for the Australian model of economic reform, so I have to bite my lip. Why haven't we actually implemented our own model of reform that's celebrated uh, internationally? There are three reasons, three possible reasons I'm going to talk briefly about. Um, one is that we might have forgotten how to do it. The second is the politics have got tougher. And the third is capability is less than it used to be. On the first of these, some of you might have seen an, an article by Laura Tingle in the quarterly essay uh, in which she talks about uh, a growing loss of institutional memory about how things have been done. And it's an interesting article and worth reading. Uh, she cites uh, turnover in the public service, the fact that so many uh, staff are under 40, uh, etc., who weren't around when a lot of these things were being done. I'm not so convinced because when you look at uh, the proportion of the staff who are still there, they're generally in senior positions and they were around when those things were being done. Um, one big area, I think, where we've seen uh, not only um, amnesia but no experience of the earlier period uh, are what uh, Terry Moran calls the teenagers in the ministerial offices uh, who are 
pretty young, um, had no experience, didn't even hear anybody talk about those things. Um, but most ministers themselves were around, um, even if they weren't all necessarily paying attention. Um, at ANZOG, we have an annual conference, and uh, in one of those, I had Bill English and Joe Hockey come along in the opening session. And Bill was waxing eloquent about what New Zealand was doing in the reform area, and Joe was looking at him admiringly. And at one point, Joe said, Bill, that's great. What's the secret of your success? And Bill said, we copied Australia. <laughs> um, Joe looked a little bit puzzled, but there are a lot of members of the audience who didn't have a clue what Bill English was talking about. So I guess my point is if New Zealand can learn from Australia, we can certainly learn from ourselves. I mean, that shouldn't be too hard. So clearly there's more going on. So the second question is, is the politics getting tougher? And the way of expressing that, I suppose, relevant to, the, to my theme is, is it harder to follow an approach that was expressly designed to address the political challenges in the past? So is that approach, which was actually designed to deal with the politics, no longer up to the politics as they currently are? Well, a number of seasoned observers uh, of, of the, the policy scene believe that that is the case. So I've got quotes there from a number of, of journalists, and I could have found a number from, from Paul uh, himself, but I've got a quote from him later. I guess in thinking about that toxicity or how things may have changed for the worst, um, you, can, you can point, and they point and others point, to a number of developments. One is uh, the advent of what I call oppositionism. And once you stick an ism on the end of a word, you know, you change the sense. We've always had strong oppositions. It's hardwired into our, into our system of government. But I don't think there's ever been a time when there's been opposition uh, almost regardless of the merit of the policy or the initiative, opposition for its own sake. Um, a lot of us can remember during the tariff debates how Keating made fun of Hewson by calling him Captain Zero because Keating was proposing to reduce tariffs uh, down towards ultimately 5% and Hewson was proposing to take them down to zero in the fightback um, uh, program. The fact that Hewson was pushing for zero obviously made it a lot easier to get to five, <laughs> in my view. I made the point about the national competition policy, you know, the unfinished agenda there being completed, or largely completed, uh, despite having a change of government. I guess the GST experience uh, was probably the beginning of a slippery slope that we've, we've been experiencing ever soon, ever since. Uh, all of that, I think, has been compounded by the uh, fragmentation in the Senate. I don't think I need to elaborate for this audience on what's going on there. Uh, we've got some quixotic independents, some minor parties, um, see themselves as policy makers, have much more, much more leverage in that area probably than, than their predecessors have had, and in that sense become a bit of a honeypot for rent seekers. Um, it's getting a lot harder to steer good legislation uh, through the Senate. There's no doubt about that. I thought that cartoon captured it rather nicely. Uh, that bonk at the top is our Prime Minister bashing his head against the, the, uh, the blackboard uh, and he's just dropped his chalk and there's a little sob coming out. It's tough. Well, the French philosopher and diplomat Joseph de Mestre 
said in 1811, in a democracy, people get the governments and parliaments they deserve. I should say he was also a monarchist and a royalist and fought for the re you know, reinstatement of the Bourbons. But, uh, but nevertheless, um, it, it makes you think that perhaps this fractious and uh, uh, fractured uh, politics that we're observing um, is responding in a way to changes that are occurring in our own society. It's a reflection of what's going on. I'm not a sociologist, I'm not a political scientist, um, but it'd be rather surprising if some of the significant recent changes we've seen uh, in society, the rising affluence, the increased availability of information, the form of that information, uh, the demographic and cultural mix that we've seen and the rise of the cities, it'd be surprising if some of that wasn't having an effect. And what we are seeing is an increase in what, in, in what citizens expect of their governments uh, and changes in the nature of those expectations, which, which governments are having difficulty responding to. And we're also seeing uh, a reduction in party loyalty. Um, they used to call them... Uh, um, uh, they call them floaters now. What did they call them before? Floater, floating voters. Uh, swinging voters, that's right. They've gone from being swingers to vote floaters. <laughs> it sounds a bit more ominous, but the number that used to be mentioned was about 20% of the electorate was potentially a swinging voter. Now they're talking 40% uh, being in that category. And it's an electorate where almost half the people in it uh, pay no net tax and therefore are likely to be less receptive to the Menzies killer line that he used to use, I, I think, when, when Labor was proposing some, uh, some um, uh, spending measures, where will the money come from? So I think it's a, harder to, a lot harder to sell reform today. We are talking earlier about the millennials, and some of us have children or grandchildren in that category. There's no doubt they put equity ahead of efficiency, they put the environment ahead of the economy. That's not to say that those things aren't linked and they can be made to understand that, but their, their heart is, is in that direction, much more, I think, than, than, uh, than, than it was for me and for a number of us in the room here. All of that, of course, is fanned by uh, the new media and its relentless quest for content. The intolerance that we see for any deliberation and delay from government uh, and the focus on personalities in conflict. And we're seeing the new media having the ability to amplify the views of any, any minority interest. Even one person can have his or her views amplified in a way uh, without the commensurate uh, scrutiny um, that, that, sh that, that should come with that. So we're seeing a parade of distractions. When there are big policy issues, we're seeing a parade of distractions occupying the parliament and occupying the press and occupying the people's minds. And uh, again, it's a long list which I won't go through. So Paul Kelly has made the point, which I think is correct, that during the reform age, the media assisted much of the historic agenda for change. The current era, era of negative politics sees the reverse. That is an important, an important difference. Well, the political, social and media trends, I think, are unlikely to be reversed anytime soon. I think the only hope uh, for the restoration of good policy and good policy process uh, is to be better equipped and to actually try harder. But as I think we've seen, that isn't happening. The reality is that as the political challenges facing government's capacity, uh, facing government have increased, its capacity to deal with them has actually declined. 
And there are a number of dimensions to that, and I've written about this in, a, in, the, in the Garan oration, and I won't go through it in great, in great detail, but perhaps the nicest way of, of summarising it for you is to say that most of them have been portrayed and captured in that working dog TV production called The Hollow Men, which is a documentary masquerading as a comedy, uh, a bit like a bit like Yes Minister was, uh, although with quite a contrasting theme so many years ago. We're in a situation which I call Washminster, which is a hybrid system of government where we're stranded, it seems to me, halfway between those two ends of Washington and, and, uh, and Westminster without a number of the positive features that are integral to each of those ends uh, of the spectrum. And a key aspect that I guess I've been thinking about in my role most recently as Dean of ANZOG uh, that's very relevant to this is the changing nature of the political office and its relationship to uh, the department. With the department, I think, becoming overly responsive uh, and losing the will and indeed the capacity for the, for the free and frank advice uh, based on good uh, analysis that the public service was traditionally known uh, and respected for. Now, don't just take my word for it. There have been a number of reviews by eminent uh, former public servants uh, looking at issues to do with the Pink Bats, NBN and East-West Link uh, issues. Um, and I won't read those out, but in each case they're raising significant questions about the capacity of the public service to provide that kind of advice, the advice that the governments need, not just the advice that they may want or that may be convenient. So I think what's happened is we've shifted from a kind of an approach that was policy first, perhaps based on the premise that, that good policy ultimately becomes good politics, to a politics first approach with the department being co-opted uh, in that in that enterprise. And again, typically giving more the advice that's wanted rather than the advice that's needed. And again, I've had conversations with very senior public servants that, that, uh, that have convinced me that that is a real problem that we currently face. Well, policy is a casualty of that, but the irony is that there's been rather little political success. In fact, there's probably been more political misjudgments and mishaps than ever. Uh, and that is another long list. And we can all think of things where you think, well, you don't necessarily expect our political leaders to be uh, great at policy, but you expect them to be pretty good at politics. <laughs> and w we've seen a number of instances where you just had to sort of scratch your head and wonder uh, and wait for the inevitable disaster, political disaster to unfold, and, and we've seen them. Uh, we've seen them federally, we've seen them uh, in, in this jurisdiction here. When you put that together with the accompanying twists and turns and the surprises and spin, um, uh, this has all succeeded, I think, in eroding the public's trust. Not only in politicians, it was always pretty low, but uh, trust in the institutions of government itself. There was just a very telling statistic that was quoted by the BCA that uh, out of a survey, and again a fairly large survey, more than 62% would not, and I quote, would not trust government to manage tax reform. And it's pretty hard to blame them for that, for that view. Well, just in concluding, I guess where I get to is that really, we really need to fix the system before we can expect to fix our policy problems. We've dropped the ball 
on, on reform because we've uh, lost core capability when we needed to be enhancing it, when the pressures, the political pressures, the societal pressures actually put uh, more premium on, on enhancing it. So the conclusion that I reach is the most important task now is to restore and build uh, policy capability. So to my 2012 list, I've now come up with two more lists, Greg, and um, you hear, you've, you've got them first in this, in this uh, meeting room today. And again, I'm not going to go through them in any, any detail, but I'm happy to talk about them. One is a list for ministers, and that first dot is heartfelt. We've had a situation in this, in this country where uh, a, a recent treasurer didn't even have anybody with economic policy expertise in his office. I mean, this is a real, this is a real problem, an incredible contrast with that earlier period when there were typically policy champions in ministers' offices who could talk to departments, understand what they were saying, and not only that, you know, convince their boss that this was a good idea to run with. You don't see that much anymore. The relationship between the office and, and the department, as I mentioned, uh, has changed very significantly from what it was. Uh, and I've got a number of other things there, but I'm, I'm running out of time and I'm not going to go through them all, but I'm happy to come back and talk about them. There's also a list for the public service. And I put the top of the list, recreating a culture of ideas and respect for evidence. Um, I don't see that much anymore. Develop an analytical critical mass. There's been an amazing hollowing out of capability within the public service to actually analyse public policy. This has been very good, Ken, for the public for the Productivity Commission. I used to wonder why the commission was getting jobs that in the past departments would clutch eagerly to their bosom. And it was because they'd lost the capability to do them. So outside uh, agencies, independent agencies like the Commission, apart from the other good reasons for giving it work, uh, there's just a lack of capability within mainstream departments. And there are a range of other uh, points that I've, that I've made there. I mean, one of them is make use of existing due process provisions. Uh, there's a thing called a regulation impact statement that, uh, that exists in government, but it's followed more in the breach uh, than the observance. And when you talk to public servants about it, they all laugh a little bit because they know that the thing is not done at the beginning of a policy process to understand the costs and benefits. It tends to be done at the end after the minister has said, I want to do such and such. They prepare this to meet the requirement to have such a statement. So that's not great. Well, in all of those areas, those two lists that I've put up there, um, in the past four years, heading an institution that had New Zealand as a member, New Zealand is doing better across all of those lists. I think Ken's nodding and, and agrees. Um, we've also seen the power of a Prime Minister and a Treasurer working together in common cause. The quiet achievers, as they call them, pursuing incremental ra radicalism, uh, and quite effectively so. So I suppose returning to the first question in my title, uh, is it too hard? I suppose my answer in short, in short is we can't tell because we haven't been trying hard enough. So at least if that's the case, there's some hope for the future. Otherwise, um, as Xavier Herbert would have put it, poor fella, my country. I'll finish there. Thank you. Thank you.